Okay, so we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 17 through chapter 6, 1 and 2. And um, I um, have a team of four of us who teach. And when I was assigning um, passages for those to teach, I made an accident and gave this to me. I said to my husband, why did I take this one? <laughs> so please bear with me. All right, um, let's, um, let's read the passage, actually. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Oh, and I already forgot to do my phone. Hold on a second. Come on. Okay. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of, the, of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with, with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now, Lord, and I just thank you for these ladies that came out left their cozy, warm, toasty homes um, to brave the cold, to drive here, and then to have to go back out to go home tonight, Lord, because they want to fellowship with their sisters, and um, they want to hear from your word, Lord, and hear from you, Lord, and just grow. As I looked at the study, and I was like, hmm, okay, Lord, what do you have for us in this study? Um, I thank you that you're growing us, you're teaching us, you're stretching us, and I just pray, Lord, that you'd minister to each woman here tonight, that you'd bless them, and those that are missing, Lord, I pray that you'd be with them as well. Lord, you know the reasons why they're not here. And just pray, God, that you would um, bless them wherever they're at and comfort them as well. In your precious name we pray. Amen. And I need my water. Okay. So in the same way, Paul was giving specific instructions on how to relate to widows in the church now he gives instructions on how to relate to elders and pastors. We're going to look again at verse 17 through 22. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, and keep yourself pure. He gives five commands to elders of the church saying, 
The first one is an elder should be paid, and even more if they teach and they rule well. So an elder in the church is simply an overseer. It can also mean pastor. They are to dedicate themselves to full-time work in the ministry. And in the, in the earlier church, instead of having one pastor like we do today, they had several who would lead the church. So it was a little different. These men would devote themselves to full-time uh, to the work of to the church. Therefore, they deserve some sort of compensation from the church. Today, we have a pastoral staff that dedicate themselves to the work of the ministry. There are two types of elders in the church. There are those that are called ruling elders who supervise the work of the church, and there are teaching elders, that, those that teach the word of God. The elders are carefully chosen from the congregation on the basis of three things, God's call, the Spirit's equipping, a witness of the work that others are see, see them doing. So they are working in the church, and they are faithful in the church. So a calling of God and equipping by the Spirit of God and a faithfulness to those observing these particular men in the church. The elders are carefully chosen, and then they are chosen based upon their gifting. Some are gifted in teaching. Some are gifted in administration. Some are gifted with overseeing. And the church needs both of these types to function correctly and to be organized. If the church isn't organized, there will be wasted effort, wasted money, and wasted opportunity. If the church doesn't have spiritually minded leaders to supervise the work of the ministry, then you will have a church with disorganization and chaos and no order. I love it that our God is a God of order because we also saw in the family there's order, the church there's order, in the marriage there's order, and we, when you walk into a place where there is not order, whether it's a home or a church, you can definitely really sense it. You can feel that there's something out of order and not right. Like, have you ever walked into a home and you know these kids are definitely in charge? <laughs> uh, it's just kind of uncomfortable, right? They're, or or if you've been, if, especially if you've been in a grocery store or in a store and the kids are definitely in charge, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little embarrassing. Um, and you just feel bad for the parent because you just, you know, it's just, uh, they're definitely running, running you. So if the church doesn't have spiritually minded leaders to supervise, this will be out of order. It's disorganized. However, the church, we need to remember, is not a business and should not be run like a business. So Paul told Timothy to make sure that the leaders were paid adequately on the basis of their particular ministry. So here in verse 18, he quotes an Old Testament law to prove his point. It's found in Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And if any of you were like, hmm, let me read that again. It was a law for farmers that forbid them to muzzle or cover their ox while they were working to prevent them from eating. So they would work, but they would eat while they were doing their work as an ox. God was teaching the principle that every worker has the right to partake of the fruit of their labor. They should be paid for their work. Another verse in the New Testament that Paul quotes is Luke 10, 7. For every laborer is worthy of their hire. Meaning if you put in work, you should be paid. So Paul goes on to say that those who rule well should be given double honor, meaning if a pastor is faithful in leading his flock and teaching and in caring for his flock, he should be paid accordingly. So the term double honor can be translated generous pay, and that word is where we get the word honorarium from. So it's good that God sees the needs 
and that he gives order. He describes and defines exactly to Timothy as the pastor that is overseeing the church, how financially not only widows but the church, uh, not only the widows but also the church, the paid staff should be taken care of. I am so thankful for God's faithfulness um, because in Calvary, it's not like um, if you're moving and you're a um, and you have a you're a plumber, you might have a job offer. That's not how it really works in Calvary, unless you're going to uh, be, you know be hired as an assistant pastor or their youth pastor, and you're moving somewhere. We were going to plant a church, so we just went. It's not like we had an offer to come there. We were just doing a Bible study. We were going to see what the Lord did with that. So my husband worked faithfully a whole nother job. Uh, he actually uh, redid hardwood floors for I think it was about three years and also was planning the church so many nights he would and then he never wanted to prepare and study while the kids were home at night doing you know in the evening he would always wait to eat till they went to bed and then he would prepare so he would prepare into the well into the evening and then get up and go to work and um, so it's, it just was, you know, that's how, what he did. And he was faithful at it. And God blessed us. And we were able to go on staff. And then here we are, um, you know, years, 13 years later, the Lord started putting that on his heart again. You know, I'm just wrestling with having a desire for this area back in New Jersey. And I just thought he was nuts. Because I'm like, you really want to do this again? <laughs> like, this is hard work. Um, and, you know, we were super attached and loved the family there, the church family, and um, loved our home and the school the girls were in and etc. But I really began to pray because I thought, you know, I, I'm married to him. And some of you have heard this many times. I'm married to him, but he ultimately does belong to the Lord. He's, he's a shepherd and he'd be lost without shepherding. It's, it's just his heart to teach God's word and to shepherd and care for people. And, you know, just like the young adults, like his heart was to prepare them, to better prepare them so then he's not repairing them years later. He just shared that with the pastor and his wife that we spoke to on Sunday. We were out of town for a little, um, just a little break and um, for a few days, and we went to a different church, and they've been there, um, it, um, the church has been there for many years. Um, some Mennonite couples broke off of the Mennonite church because they were tired of the legalistic, and they started this Bethany Grace Fellowship. It was just five minutes from where we were living because any Calvary was like an hour. So he's like, do you want to go to that? And it's always hard for me to not go to a Calvary. I don't know if anybody else is like that when you're away, but I super feel like I'm like cheating. Like, I just, I don't know. And, you know, you're just so comfortable with Calvary. You know what to wear. You don't have to stress about, you know, like, we were, I mean, at where we were at, we were in East Earl, PA. And I'm not kidding you. Every few little feet, there were huge, massive churches. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, there's, like, huge churches out, out here. You know, where do you think we should go? And so I'm trying to, like, research it. And then he's like, oh, I'm like, all right, you just figure it out. You figure it out. I'll just trust wherever you want us to go. And so it was fun because we got we went to this church and got to meet the pastor and his wife. And it was actually the owner of the Airbnb. It was where they go to church. So we sat with them. So anyway, they were just planted there three years ago, and they were from Virginia. So they were just sharing me how hard it was for their kids. And we got to, like, pray with them and minister to them. It was, I mean, my husband prayed for them, and it was just really sweet. But I say all this, it's just a little different when you do a Calvary because you're not, it's not like you're, you know, um, you're given, like, a package, like if you're a plumber or a dentist or, you know, whatever it might be. If you move to another state, you know, like even me explaining to my family, we're moving back to New Jersey. It's just like if Tony were to take another job, you know, we're coming 
but we, you know, it's blank. We don't really know, but we're trusting the Lord because he's faithful. He's faithful in York. He's always been faithful. So we assumed the same thing. When we came back here, we assumed, okay, he'll just work a job. He applied over to 60 jobs and no door opened and and God opened the door for him to be on staff here. So he, God always has other plans, and he opened the door sooner for Tony to be full-time on staff, which was a huge blessing. We were so thankful that God provided. Um, and so I say all this to say he's always faithful in how he provides. So Paul moves on now to the next command in verses 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So not one witness, but two or three so in other words, be sure of your facts. The way to do this is that two or three other witnesses who saw or heard what exactly happened. Now, this is against a pastor, but we can learn from this, ladies. I know sometimes we're like, this passage is a little like, oh, oh this, it doesn't apply to us. But we can actually, there are things that we can pull and grow from. When we hear something from somebody, we need to stop and wait. And we need to remember two vital rules of thumb. There's always two sides to a story, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. We always need to remember to have our facts straight. You need to really be sure before you make accusations against someone. Now, I know women love to gossip and spread stuff and tell their story. Not any of you, though, right? You're all godly, and you're here tonight. But I really caution you godly women that if you ever hear something, an accusation against somebody, especially in the church, that we need to be mindful and that we need to be mature, that we don't stoop to a level of immaturity and listen and just pass on that information because we don't know if it's accurate. Because then who is held accountable? Who's going to stand before the Lord someday for that information that we might have destroyed somebody's, you know, reputation or whatever? We'll stand before the Lord someday for spreading that information. So that's just a little wisdom wisdom. Um, for you guys, for all of us. So we need to be mindful that we have our facts straight, that there are witnesses, and that we've heard both sides of the story. So here the accusation is against a pastor in the church, that you are mature and you handle it correctly, that you ask questions before you draw conclusions. I think we as women want to draw a conclusion faster than we want to hear the whole story. So we need to just caution ourselves. Sometimes I think we're in too much of a rush and we need to go a lot slower. There's wisdom in slowly, slowly making a decision. Uh, rumor and suspicion are not adequate grounds for discipline. Because what, that's what Paul will talk about next. So how to handle that discipline. So second, when an accusation is made, witness should be present. I think it goes back to say to your kids, like, do you remember when they were younger? Would you say that if your friend was right here with you? Would you say that? What you're telling me about your friend, would you repeat that with them standing right here? And oftentimes they'd be like, no, mom. I'm like, well. So Paul says here, would you say if the cues were standing here, would you spread that? Would you share that? So we need to use that rule of thumb in our situations as well. When we are tempted to share a little piece of info that we get from someone, let's make sure, especially if it's an accusation against somebody in the church, that we have all of our facts straight. Making an accusation against a pastor is a serious matter. I encourage you to never believe what you hear, and what should you do? What does the word of God say? Go to the source. You know, if you hear something, go right to that person, you know, and straighten it out. I just encourage you to do that. Also, always have 
more than one witness is with you, two or three, lest the first one witness be swayed. Then it's one or two people that are always hearing and can vouch for you if it's, and it's not your word against their word. The reason why this is so vitally important in the church, especially with a pastor, because why? If the enemy can take a pastor out, guess what he can do? Goodbye, congregation. He's destroyed way more than just one family. So we need to be mindful. We need to support our pastor. I'm sorry, I know he's my husband. <laughs> believe that God has placed him over this fellowship and believe that he hears from the Lord. He truly does seek the Lord and what God wants him to do. People in the church can always find something to complain about or leave the church about. The music's too loud. It's too soft. The church is too small. The church is too big. The people are too friendly. They're not friendly enough. The church service is too long. It's not long enough. It's just ridiculous what people will find to complain about. But I found that the people that are complaining the least are the ones that are most involved in the church serving. So let us not be the ones that complain. And if we are, maybe we should ask ourselves, hmm, how can I get involved? And how can I serve? So next, Paul speaks on disciplining the pastor if he is found in sin. So verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Paul says you're to do this in front of the congregation. The purpose of this is that you're above board and nothing is hidden. That if a pastor is guilty of an accusation, then he should be rebuked or correct before all of the other leaders. Why? It says it right there. So that they may fear God. A godly reverence might come upon them. That they would realize how serious it is to stand before people and do, and do what they're doing. He should be given the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Then the matter should be settled and never brought up again because it's forgiven by the Lord. And what does that mean? Just like our sins, ladies, right? God takes it as far as the east is from the west, and he never brings it up again. So the third command is in verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So Paul tells Timothy to obey the word of God no matter what his personal feelings might be. I love that he adds this in here. You know, often we think, I don't know, I just never feel like for a guy, their feelings are so different than our feelings. You know what I mean? And our feelings, I really feel like they get in the way of some decisions that we can make as women. That we really need to be wise that we're not making decisions based on how we feel because they can really misguide us. So I love it that he says, uh, you know, obey the word of God no matter what his personal feelings might be. This is easier said than done. It's easy to invest in people and to get attached to people to the point where you might even be accepting of their sin or even justify it. There is no seniority, seniority with Jesus Christ. Everyone has the same standing with him. When we show partiality, we will always make the situation worse and not better. Finally, Paul says in verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So Paul tells Timothy to be slow on laying hands on people. My husband's very wise with this. He's very slow. Here are some pros and cons of placing someone in leadership. And I've watched this through, you know, the years at Calvary and the years here. First, pros to, pros to waiting. 
first you get to know them, right? You really get to see their heart and their motives are revealed as they wait. God often tests them in the waiting period. They have time to sit and receive. If there is an ulterior motive, it will be revealed. You have time as the leader to watch them. How do they work with people? How do they respond? Are they able to receive? You save yourself the the difficulty of having to have them step down if things are not going well and they're, you know, in leadership. They will be able to get to know the standards and doctrines that are here at this church. You save them from getting a big head if they are immature, if they are not mature enough. Now the con, I have less cons than I do pros to waiting. Good people may move on if they don't get to serve right away. People may label you as not wanting to receive help from anyone else, but there is much wisdom in waiting. You see a lot of fruit when you wait to see um, the other side of what really their heart is in it. This is why Paul says, if you don't know them well, don't lay hands on them quickly. In waiting, you will see fruit or their lack of fruit. Warren Wearsby said, the ministry of the local church rises and falls on its leadership. We want to be the pure, spotless bride of Christ, a pure heart, a pure life, pure speech, and pure motives. So verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, we could probably spend the next few hours just on this verse because it is definitely a struggle within the Christian realm. But we need to really look at what Paul's intentions were with this verse. It's not an endorsement for drinking alcohol. Rather, Paul instructs Timothy in this particular case not to drink the water. We don't understand this because why? We can go right up to our faucet or our refrigerator and push a button and beautiful clear water comes out. Depends on where you're at, whether it tastes a little different or it tastes good. There is different. I know Ocean City's tastes different to me. Um, if you're on well or if you have city, it tastes different. So back then, the water was not, it was very polluted. And I can understand this because I remember when I was, um, I believe I was like 10 or 12, and my grandma and my grandpa were going to uh, California to visit me and Gary. Um, they were living out there at that time, and we were going to go to Mexico, and I um, wanted a soda. They told me I couldn't have any water, so they're like, well, you can get a soda out of the machine. There was a machine in Mexico. So I got the soda out and gulped it down and came back home, had a great trip out there, came back home, and oh my gosh, I was in the most severe stomach pain. They could not figure out what was wrong with me. I was dropping weight. I couldn't hold any food in. I would eat and just sorry, I'd be in the bathroom. It would just run right out of me. I lost like 20 something pounds. Like it was getting really bad. And here it was all because of that can of soda. So in Mexico, I I simply should have wiped the can or my grandma or somebody should have, we should have known because when they spray for pesticides out there, the same kind of thing, it gets on the can. So I had, you're not gonna believe this, I had eggs and things living in my stomach And they were basically destroying me, like eating all the food that I was eating. And Dr. Schur in Millville, thank God, he figured it out. He finally asked my grandmother. They just kept taking me to the doctors, kept taking me to the hospitals, couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he said, have you guys traveled? 
anywhere. And we were like, yeah, we went to California, but that's not. And then my grandmom, thankfully, somebody, you know, I was a kid and I just, I mean, I literally would just, I would walk around. I, I wasn't able to go to school. It was horrible. So I understand what they mean. And basically he put me on some antibiotic that was able to, or some medication that was able to kill all that in my stomach. But it creeps me out to think that there were these things in there living, you know what I mean? And babies. I had, he said I had eggs and, and everything. So, um, so this is what is implied here, is that water was very polluted that they were drinking. And um, it, 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 it was diseased water. Without moderate sanitation, the water was very polluted. So Timothy's frequent illnesses and stomach ailments were perhaps due to that water. I'm sure of it because it's not the water that we have today. So this instruction applies only to use wine, using wine for medicinal purposes. It's not to be cared, compared to the wine that is available today with a lot of sugar and it, it's, it's more, back then it was more of a really, really, really good juice. It's just not made the way it's made now, okay? So the definition for little is small or size, small in size or extent, not great or large, short in duration as a little time or season. Just like how long do you use medicine? Just like while you're sick, right? Like you don't take Vicks every night or NyQuil every night for the fun of it. That is what is applied here. Let's move on. Verse 24 and 25, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So this relates to verse 22, in being careful who you think is a qualified candidate. So hasty superficial assessment, whether positive or negative, are sometimes inaccurate, leading to the enlistment of unqualified men or the overlooking of those whose fine qualities are less obvious. With time, however, you can see a person's true motives. So these verses are a warning of verse 22. Do not rush to ordain someone. Let's finish with chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Let as many bondservants bond as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Some historians have estimated that as high as half of the population of the Roman entire empire were slaves during this particular time. Many of these people were very educated, and the problem was legally they were considered slaves. That is until Jesus came and everything changed. He brought freedom for all people. The gospel message brought freedom and salvation. This appealed to the slaves and many of them became believers. This changed their outlook, desiring to honor him as their true master. How people related to one another in social, such social arrangements, eliminating slave and master way of operating in that culture. What we have today to relate to understand this is employee versus employer, the arrangement, the work setting. This is how we might receive instruction and application from these verses. Under the yoke, meaning they are in charge, you're under their leadership. 
And Christian workers should be the best workers, most valuable employees in the company. Sadly, you don't always see that though. They should have the best attitudes. They should be the most respectful, loyal, cooperative, not complaining. They should be grateful and be a team player. Best performance seen in quality and effort of how we do our jobs. I like to remind myself, though I do have an earthly boss, um, he's not a believer, he's Jewish, he's a wonderful boss, but I answer to someone higher than him. And that really changed my outlook in how I work and how I conduct myself at work. I remind myself that I'm working for Jesus. He's my boss, and I'm seeking his approval. So in verse 2, Paul is addressing if we find ourselves in the situation where our boss is a Christian. And this gets even harder. We don't want to slack off from being too social or doing spiritual things instead of working. A lot of times we think, oh, they're a Christian. They'll be understanding. I'm, sh I'm sharing Jesus with the patients here. You know, I'm taking my time. So in the meantime, we're getting all backlogged because I'm sharing Jesus and praying with everybody. And in the meantime, there's 20 more ready, waiting for their allergy injections. So that shouldn't be, right? We don't want to slack off being too social instead of working, thinking they are Christians so they will be merciful and gracious to us, basically abusing their kindness as their boss because they're Christians, justifying it's okay because okay, we're all in the family of God. Instead, we should be inspired to work all the more because we are serving who? A fellow Christian, right? Amen. Let's pray.